what would you do this morning? We heard bar B A. We heard B A R R E. I did bar method and and I I worked on my bar shelf. That's your butt. Oh, so you're just trying to get a juicy booty. Wow. Juicy booty in the house. Get one or maintain one. Yes, 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 Ted. Are we on yet? Is this thing on? Well, we're recording, we're, but we're Ted's recording. a really good editor. This is the cold open. The hollow buddy. And we all. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Hollow Bunny Leadership Podcast. I am Kristen Zeman, and I am here with my energetic enigma co-host, Sylvia Moyer. I just pulled that out of my butt. E-words. An E-word today. Okay. Yes. Well, we're not talking about butt. This is a family show. You are an enigma, Sylvia Moyer, and and you are my my podcast co-host, and... Sylvia and I are former police chiefs, but this podcast is not just for cops. No, it's not. It is for anyone interested in talking about life and leadership and particularly the lessons that we've learned about both. And these lessons fill up the hollow bunny. People always want to know what is with the title of your podcast. Well, the hollow bunny is a metaphor for the empty suit. Those who have titles or perhaps lack some substance. And so we like to learn lessons, share lessons uh, that fill up our hollow bunnies. So Sylvia, can I tell you who's who's filling our bunny today? Yes, ma'am, you can. Tell me, tell everyone. Oprah's on, The Rock is on, you know, I'm sure people from all over the globe have tuned in and they want to hear the juicy little filler you have for us today, Kristen Zeman. So today we, first of all, I want to let you know that we had Taylor Swift booked and I bumped her because we got Julie Parker. So this is Julie Parker is our guest today. And yes, absolutely valid. She is the CEO of her own consultancy, Julie Parker Communications. And she's got experience in all facets of media industry and uniquely positioned to guide government agencies and nonprofit and for-profit organizations through comms training. So I'm going to leave it right there because I always like to ask our guests, you know, to give us a little bit of background. So Julie, first of all, welcome to the Hollow Bunny podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, You can call me DJ Julie with these these uh, headphones. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So yeah, we do, we do communications training across the country, but we also, we have two other components of our business. The uh, One of the other components is crisis communications response. And I'll have more on that later when you ask me about one of the highlights <laughs> of my career. And then the other component is we have a bunch of clients on communications retainer. And that can mean we are an organization's crisis communications insurance, meaning we just sit in the background lurking, waiting to be called upon if needed. But in addition to the crisis comms retainer, we have your basic communications where you need help with speech writing. You need help with preparing for a news conference, developing your talking points, helping to write news releases, developing your social media content, anything that could be communications focused, we do that. 
Okay. So back up. First of all, you are, I met you at the IACP many, many moons ago when you were, you know, doing some consulting for them, but back up because I am always so intrigued to hear about someone who is in journalism, in media, and I'm, I'm assuming that's where your journey began. So tell us about how you got into yes. this line of work and then how you crossed paths into the law enforcement realm, because in your profession, they call that going to the dark side. So I want to hear about, you know, how, how you, started <laughs> and how you <laughs> it's true. It's true. Julie, Julie. Oh, what? 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 <laughs> I never anticipated leaving news because back in the day when you were in journalism, that is your career for life. Yeah. And I spent four years at C-SPAN. That was my entry into journalism. I, I wanted to be on camera, but I took any job I could get to start the process. And I was a part-time studio camera operator in C-SPAN with the big, gigantic studio cameras. Again, because I'm 111 years old, those <laughs> things existed. Then four years there, I'm, I went to Hagerstown, Maryland. It's in Western Maryland. And I was a one-woman band, meaning... I had the big giant TV on my shoulder. Like a stringer. Was, is that a stringer? Don't try to take like, our lingo, Sylvia. No, <laughs> that is not a stringer. Oh, well. uh, come on. You're talking about your barry booty shelf. And I didn't know what that meant either. And that okay. is why I bumped Taylor Swift. So, so checked. Yeah. Okay, Julie Parker. Now we know why it's called Julie Parker Communication. Didn't okay. So schooled, young lady, please. So so a stringer actually is a freelancer yeah. who will um in some cases listen to police scanners and then chase the news and go gather the video, the sound, whatever they're getting, and then they sell it to somebody. So as a one-woman band, I was an employee of the WHAG TV station. And I was a reporter, anchor, writer, editor, custodian, like everything you could do. I broke two cameras because they don't train you. They just send you off, off you go. And again, the gigantic TV camera. So were so you careless or destructive? No. Oh, oh, oh like yeah, that's, mm. um, let's just say training is key. And I wasn't trained and the whole tripod thing heavy camera falls over right so leadership lesson number you. one people training, training is key out of the mouth of training julie parker because those are very expensive cameras by the way and my salary was fourteen thousand five hundred dollars annually damn that's sugar right mama. and i broke two cameras in that time <laughs> sugar mama okay so then i leave that station and I go to News Channel 8, which was a 24-7 cable station in the DC market. And I went there as a writer saying, I'm gonna get on air. So within a month, I got on air and started my career in journalism in the Washington DC market, was there for four years. Um, one September day, I left downtown Washington DC after doing a story on Michael Jordan and the Wizards, was driving home, looked over at the Pentagon on my normal commute into work in Springfield, Virginia, noted what a pretty day it was, walked into the newsroom, the second plane hit the World Trade Center oh. and started anchoring for several hours shortly thereafter. And I think 
there's there's a component in here. It's not it's not leadership, but it's how reporters and cops are more alike than cops would ever want to admit, because the newsroom was obviously in shock watching this. But like those who run to the danger, we obviously as journalists don't run to the danger in some cases, we start reporting. And but what, what we all do is compartmentalize the horrible thing that you're witnessing and you go into work mode. And let me be very clear, I am not saying that reporters and police officers are the same or reporters and firefighters are the same, but there is a common thread that I think that everyone should acknowledge where there needs to be better care for people who Word. experience horrible things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Because and you're, you're right there. You're first you're high witness. Yeah. And you're highlighting something that's interesting. There is, you know, take, you know, running towards the danger aside. But when you think about the parallels of our professions is what is our ultimate goal? And that is to get to the truth, you know, to, to find, you know, what happened. And that's what we do as, as, you know, as law enforcement. And that's what you do as journalists. That's why there, there is absolutely truth to that statement that you made that we have more in common than not. So that's interesting. Oh, Right. And, and Julie Parker, I mean, you've brought up something that just really comes up strongly for me. And that is that journalists have come under the same kind of condemnation from those people that aren't even in the arena. Those people right. that know, know very little about your work, the peril, the, the storytelling, how one discerns and asks questions and gathers evidence to support the claim, to bring the facts to light. Democracy dies in darkness. And, and for you to tell the truth and somebody doesn't like the truth, then they, the condemnation of the right. entire professional of journalism has been so distasteful. So I will say there are a lot of cops that resonated and we were like, sorry, uh, it, it is really remarkable. You have just hit on something that is powerful, Julie Parker. Absolutely. Well, thank so, you. Julie, it's important to me. And yeah, so listen, I just before I then I want you to 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 talk about your career and what you do. But this is what you just brought up, Sylvia, is that the notion that, you know, especially cops that don't like the media. Right we notoriously in our profession have been taught no comment that we don't talk to the media. And we have had this lack of transparency on the law enforcement side for many years. When I came up, you know, many moons ago in law enforcement, that was the, the marching orders, no comment to the media. You don't release any, any video when video came into play in law enforcement. And so your job as you come in here where these, these paths converge is to train law enforcement really that transparency is key. So talk about what the training is that you provide to people. Well, after, after leaving that station where, where that horrible event happened, I went to channel seven in Washington, DC. It's the ABC affiliate spent nine years there anchoring and reporting. And towards the end of that time period, a major at the time in Prince George's County said, you should come work for our police department. And again, going back to that notion of at that time, um, in the early 2000s, once you're in journalism, you think you're going to stay there forever. But he kept touting how 
I could be in charge. I could be the boss as compared to as a reporter or anchor, you go where you're told. If you're anchoring the news, your times are set. If you're a reporter who lives in Maryland and you do a water main break in the Nassus, Virginia at 615, your, your day is not your own. There's, there's no control when you're in the media. There's not a lot of control. Um, you're beholden to whatever the news is. And so I did enjoy the notion of being able to, in theory, control my schedule. That's what I believed at the time because I was naive. Over the course of two years, so cute. he yes, yeah, so adorable. He recruited me and finally I said yes. And I went to my first police department and it was the longest, most challenging, most informational phase of my career. It was five years at the Prince George's County Police Department, which sits on the border of Washington, DC. And I learned a lot about the profession. I learned about the media from the vantage point of a police department media relations director. And I worked very hard as a journalist to be fair and balanced, to treat everyone well, to take both sides of the story and, and work through that to, to report on the news. And I saw great examples of journalism and I saw despicable examples of journalism. But wow. having come from the world of, of the media, I didn't immediately say or paint with a broad brush, the profession sticks. Because like any profession, you have your rock stars and you have people who stick. And you learn to work through it and you don't just throw out the whole profession because a couple of people are not good at what they do. And I, I learned so much about, well, I, I guess the, the thing that stood out to me most was that people didn't know, regular people did not know the amount of training that goes into that profession. And I saw firsthand how judgmental the public is. And it's like, you, you, you two certainly know this. Well, you should have shot the armed suspect in the knee because that would be gentler than something else. Well, if the armed suspect is coming at you with a weapon and you have that amount of time and your life or that of the public or your fellow officers is at risk, then you have to make difficult decisions. So I, I, I got to experience all of that through ride-alongs and being at homicide scenes and working very closely with command staff all the way down to the recruits and talking to the recruits about this is why we don't say no comment anymore. I started in 2011, was relatively new at the time for journalists to be in that position. And in the DC market, which is a top 10 media market, it was, it was new to have a journalist in this role. And I probably worked 70 hour weeks because I wanted to prove to a lot of people, including myself, that we could change the, the reputation that our department had by using social media to communicate and thinking of it as like a customer service relationship where we're the government agency, you and the public need something or want to share something, and we're actually going to respond to you on social media. And then also the relationship with the traditional media had to be better than it had been. Coming from the world of reporting, I knew exactly what reporters needed, wanted, what times they needed it, 
And again, that customer servants mentality was if we're good to them, at least we hope they're going to be neutral, fair and balanced, but at best we're going to get better coverage than we had been before because they're going to trust us, know us, like us better. You hit on so many things there, Julie. I want to pull on this one thread. We're talking about trust in 2024. And I was fortunate to come from an organization that we had a professional journalist early on in my career as our media person. And as a graveyard, which is 21 to 7, 9 p.m. to 7 a.m., graveyard watch commander, I was responsible for half of the city or sometimes the whole city if my counterpart wasn't there in Sacramento, big place. Right. Yeah. And so I had a relationship with I call them stringers. Sorry, I, I you know, <laughs> used your term. Sorry, sister, forgive me. And they were respectful of me. I was respectful of them. I gave them space. They knew because I'm not really tall. I stood up on the curb. They stood down in the street. They got their soundbite. I respected them and gave them access. We had a relationship where I could tell them no now or yes and. And I would give them B-roll or oh, another term. I would give them what they needed in the time they needed it to tell our story. With You gave truth. them access to B-roll, yeah. which is you, you allow them closer it. to the scene. They earned it. And it wasn't super popular. And so when we're talking about this relationship, this is in every industry. You you have a relationship. You prof, You provide guardrails. I mean, how meaningful and important is that for this public service, for this leadership piece? Can you kind of talk about that? It's not rocket science. Right. It's not. Treat them well. Assume. Start Start by assuming they're going to be good. Uh, what about that? Say it, Kristen. <laughs> Make a charitable assumption. Make the charitable assumption. Bam. So, so do that. Then if they, then if they go off the rails, then you bring them back in. I'll give you an example. We were at a very, um, sort of dramatic homicide scene where a body had been discovered in a well on a, on a home's property, one of the, you know, a well. So the well went down 40 feet deep. They, uh, someone reported the body, our, um, our, Homicide detectives come in in hazmat suits, very, you know, the big white suits. It's very dramatic. And so everyone's coming to this rural scene. And my mission is to provide them as, as close access as we can to not interfere with what the detectives are doing, but to let the media cover the story in such a way that they see what the detectives are doing. And I had to work on my end to allow that because this was pretty early on. Our, our, cult, our culture hadn't changed entirely. And so I said, you know, work with me and I will, I will make sure that we, that the media follows the rules. So we have a little cluster of reporters and we're giving them access and we, we can't tape off the entire area. It was too big an area. Well, I'm talking to either detectives or other reporters or whatever, and I look out of the corner of my eye and there's a radio reporter going around the crime tape, working to get closer. And I won't name her, but basically I was like, you know, Sally, no, what are you doing? Come back. And Sally's like, oh, I didn't know, whatever. And I worried that, that I was going to 
my reputation was going to be burned on the detective side. See, we gave you an inch and your people took a yard. First of all, they're not my people. I just work with them. <laughs> but, you know, th these these missteps happen and Sally and I had a talk and Sally then stayed behind the line and nothing was ruined. No investigation was compromised. Good and point. moving forward, you know, moving forward, we didn't bar people and keep them two miles back. Right. So I also want to talk about something here that has been such a, a resistance on law enforcement side. And you mentioned, you know, going into that police department and you didn't say the words, but it's marketing. And, um, you know, we have been notoriously bad at marketing ourselves. Law enforcement is, you know, we stay in our silos and then, you know, only the bad things get reported. And so we've, we've come into this evolution of understanding that we have to market ourselves as if we are any kind of other organization. And that means putting out the good things. And, you know, and Syl had mentioned earlier in Sacramento that they had a journalist come onto that side of the police department, but this was new for me. So when I became chief, I hired someone from the media side and what he brought to the table was we got to go on TikTok. We have to, you know, start putting forth the personality of these police officers because they're the ones who are interacting with the public. And I got so much pushback from the traditional minded officers as that, you know, why do we need to be out there, you know, you know, bringing personality when we're just here to do a job. You know, what is your response to that, to the resistance of, of marketing a police department, which, you know, puts us in a light where you see the things that you wouldn't normally see us do? Luckily, that has changed drastically. That old school mentality of we're not going to do dances. You're not going to have us drinking coffee with the neighborhood. We're not doing all that. You're, you're, you're very... Um, I'm not going to say quickly, it was a process, but it would be somewhat unusual in 2024 where you don't see a police department marketing itself. And I want to be very clear. It is not spin. You'll hear that phrase. Oh, it's copaganda. Why? Because we're out at the local coffee shop meeting with people drinking coffee. And then we post about it. Why is that copaganda? Right. It's, it's, it's our news and we're sharing it. Our news that day is this particular event. Our news that day could be a shooting in an, another part of the city. And we're also going to report that. So I, I get the notion of, I think there's a bravado that uh, some don't want to, don't want to tarnish with fun, happy stuff. But given where the profession has gone, just since I started in 2011, think of, of the, major incidents that have become news and history across this country, not all of it good. If you continue to have this mindset of, we're not going to, we're not going to play that game. We're not going to do this stuff. We're not going to post our little dances. Well, people are not going to know you. They're going to form opinions of you. You're going to feel it in some way, shape or form. If you don't become just a little bit, little bit vulnerable and open yourselves up to we're actually human. 
This is the emotional bank account that you're describing is, you know, you put deposits into this emotional bank account, AKA you build relationships with the community so that when the defecation hits the oscillation, uh, or even perhaps <laughs> the police department um, has a misstep because we're not perfect, but then we can stand in front of that podium and say, today was not a reflection of our best selves. Today, we did not rise to our mission. We failed miserably. And because we've put so much into the emotional bank account, we can then have our community step up and say, we understand that this is not the best of you. And so there's the reasons for that. I mean, and it was, you call it, you know, copaganda or what people call it. What, what it really is, is what we do every day, day in and day out that people don't see, you know, but there are going to be times where you have to bring the negative and that's where you have to stand up and just, you know, if you mess up, fess up, right? And owning a mistake is very basic. You're, you're better off with, you know, if you're a kid and you happen to steal liquor from your parents' liquor cabinet <gasps> and you get busted. No, you didn't. Had I owned up, I would not have been grounded for as long as I was, but I didn't. I hit it. And I was hiding and hoping that I would never get caught. And generally speaking, hiding and hoping doesn't work. It's not Hope a PR it's not strategy. A strategy. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. Everyone knows everything now. If you're somehow in this magical place where people don't find out things that you're doing wrong, good on you. Never move. Not good on you, actually. You know, you're. It's it's not ideal. Just own it. And we we used to when we got up to announce bad things. You know, if we had an officer arrested. That's going to become public as it should. And we should stand up and share what we can and just be vulnerable and take questions from the media. Because if something like that happens, please don't say, we're here to give a statement. Obviously, we won't be taking questions and off you go. No, no, nothing's obvious about that. If you call the media to your house, if there's a if there's a news conference, you make sure that you open yourself up to answering questions. Can you answer every single thing? Of course not. Can you explain why you can't answer some things? Of course not. Nothing makes me crazier than when law enforcement calls a news conference and then all they do is give a statement and walk away. It's not a news conference. I took that advice once and I said, I will never do that shit again. And I'll tell no. you, Julie Parker, I had a, as a, as a police chief, you know, I've never pretended that I'm good at any of that stuff, but you know, it was a point of serious contention when I, in a very, very difficult uh, time as a police chief, I said, our officer acted outside of our values and our training to actually say that I had chiefs go, what are you saying? It was true. It's true. Right. Everybody can see it. Saying? It's like, and I told him first, I told the organization first, and I'm like, our officer acted outside of our values and our training. This is a matter of extreme consequence for us. And so that, I, I mean, I was met with just rage. And so I, I think there's a, there's a point that you're giving people, Julie Parker, and that is permission to speak the truth using words that paint the picture is it it's not played over and over it's played over and over if you try to go around it if you sidestep right. it if 
that's what is this loop of doom. And we see it on the national uh, TV. We see it nationally a lot. It's like how we do case studies. We do case studies on this because your communications is everything. If you come out and say this bad thing happened, this is why we don't approve of this. This is what we were, we might do to try to prevent it in the future. Then what? There's then what we we've said all we can say and we've owned it. And it's, and in theory it's done. It's to your point, Sylvia, when you try to hide it and when you say this much, when you should be saying this much that the public and the media and social media will not let it go because they know there's more. You know what it takes? It takes, um, it takes a gravitas. It takes, yes, a, you know, confidence. that person that's standing up there to, to build their team, to bring people in to say, this makes sense. This is truth. This is, this is what we're going to say because this is truth. And then it takes kind of, I believe this is what we're talking about in executive development and policing is like, look, don't take joy in somebody else's pain. Have what Kristen and I talk about this charitable assumption. We're going to stand there beside them and say, this is tough and you are surviving. You are speaking truth. Your character was on full display, right, Kristen? Yes. And I love, Julie, that you brought up the V word, you know, that vulnerability to stand up in front of the world and say, um, you know, I, 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 we can be better. And I always looked at that in this way as there are three parts to an apology. I, I am sorry we were wrong. And it's the third part that we often forget is here is what we're going to do to fix it. Or here is how we are going to be better going say, forward. Say it again. There are three parts to an apology. I am sorry I was wrong, and here is how I'm going to fix it. Here is what we are going to do going forward so it doesn't happen again. Is Do you think that the reason that this doesn't happen is that pride or fear, or what is it that makes specifically, well, maybe I, I shouldn't say specifically, because if you look at like the medical field, how many things are going wrong in hospitals that we don't know about, but the, the public doesn't hold hospitals to account the way the public holds law enforcement to account. Yeah. Right? And I think it is. I think there's a parallel there with, um, with officers being those people who, um, you know, just by the very nature of our profession, we have to enforce the law, which makes us not very popular. And so as a result, you know, when we do something wrong, it's a hypocrisy. You know, it's that, well, you hold me to this accountability standard, and yet you have breached that trust. And so they're harder on us. And I think that's the comparison to the medical field is that, you know, we're just here to help. And, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm and help people. And we're law enforcement. It's that hypocrisy. And I think that's what infuriates people. Well, and and we think if I'm going to all my healthcare people are going to rise up with the pickleballers and the people who walk like dumb shits, they're all going to rise up and be at my front door. Okay. So, so yeah. And the medical field kills through malpractice, like 10 right. times more people per year. And the people are typically naked and on a, uh, they're unconscious and surrounded by a lot of really awesome trained people and great technology and yet things go wrong now i'm not minimizing it i think the difference is we enjoy privileges we enjoy governmental 
uh, entitlements and authorities that other people don't. The two that were the only profession, we have the right to use deadly force, right? right? And the right to deprive someone of their freedom. Those are very significant pieces. And we have become the reflexive muscle of the government in places we're not appropriately placed. Through history, the police have been thrust into that. And it puts us in conflict with people. I get it. And because we have that, not me, but because law enforcement has that power, it's even more imperative that if something goes wrong, you just explain it. I will tell you that we have found that in doing crisis communications response, that most times when we get that call, not all, but most, the call comes late because either the agency, and this goes for government governments as well, not just law enforcement, but um, or organizations too, they wait for whatever reason. They they try out their apology that's that's not quite there. They don't apologize to see how that goes. They stay quiet, see how that goes. And generally, if the event is significant enough, it's just not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. Bad news does not age well like a fine wine. It gets worse. Right. And you could point back to when Kristen had the very significant crisis of her officers responding to the plat plant to the plant. I'm just going to say that because I always mess it up. I'm sorry, Kristen. And five of her cops, six of her cops were five shot, six injured. I get it, Mr. Hamstring. Uh, she stood there. She spoke about this incredibly significant event. And here's something I want you to speak. You have to be prepared for the fallout. How many emails did Kristen get by people saying, I'm very concerned about you, that you have thyroid cancer? It's like, wait, what? I'm sorry. I, I'm leading people that have just, like, people have been murdered. These incredible people who were murdered by a madman and cops shot running into danger. And they neutralized that, that event. And they saved a lot of people. And she was standing up as their leader speaking about this. And what was the fallout, Kristen? So, Julie, after, you know, I was at the podium, we had three press conferences. And, you know, and this was, you know, my first indoctrination into national news, you know, everyone being there. And then also, you know, having to confront uh, a shooter who had a revoked a firearm owner's identification card. So now people were looking at who's at fault here. How did this person get the gun? So we're dealing with all of right. this. And I start getting uh, just inundated and my administrative assistant inundated as I'm standing at the podium. Apparently there is a bump on my neck that people start to zero in on and people started writing emails and I'm not kidding. The subject line is you have cancer in all caps. And so people zoned cancer. in on this, this bumped, this bump in on my neck, which I, I had no idea I had. So, uh, you know, honestly, that was, it was great. It turns out I didn't have thyroid cancer. It was a, a cyst that was growing on my neck and turned out to be nothing, but something, but it was just funny. Oh. The fallout is just, it's just interesting. And the fallout is that people were then, then focused on something different. And I was having to deal with that and trying to respond to people. So finally, I just, you know, put out a statement as please don't write in anymore about the bump on my neck. Thank you so much. And I'm getting it checked out. It's probably just a peanut butter M&M anyway, just stuck there. Uh, but anyway, that's just like, it, it was just interesting, <laughs> the fallout. Be prepared for anything. But even doing that, how many people wouldn't 
just, just, I, that's a very human response when you're getting inundated with questions and presumably they're, they're concerned for your well-being. That's a great response, but so many leaders just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't touch it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, so back to, you know, the, the crisis comes and I love what you're doing in training police departments because it is just imperative, you know, that we get this training and it's, it's not typical that we in law enforcement get training for the media. It's something that we're, that we're thrust upon when an incident happens. And so, you know, there is, there's preparation in our field. We are relegated to training and response and people fail to recognize the fact that we have to train and prepare for, you know, the media and telling our story as well. And so, you know, that's where you come in. What has been, you know, the highlight of this career that you have now found yourself on and you know what are the success stories that you have in doing what you're doing I want to I want to make two points here one is about our crisis communications training which it's very important that I share it is not just about the media and that's a line as a former reporter I will say all day long it is not so when you're getting pressure to come out and do the, the news conference I get that there is immense pressure from the media but what law enforcement still could improve upon, and they are infinitely better at communicating with the media than they used to be, is social media. It's a critical piece that is still lacking. Even when they're knocking it out of the park on the media front, the social media often never shows up. And if you think about the fact that we're, we're in this world where we constantly have these acts of mass violence, especially in this country, if law enforcement would start focusing on using social media as a tool to communicate with people, to say, shelter in place, officers are on the way, this is what's happening, don't leave, don't come to this area, and using it much more prolifically than is taking place now. I encourage you to watch any crisis. If you watched Kansas City, Missouri, and how that police department handled this crisis, look at their social media I went to Twitter, sorry, X, and watched how they were communicating there. And then also, you know, my eye on the TV, watching how that chief is handling those news conferences. And it's, it's got to be a two-pronged approach. And actually, I'm going to say three, because hopefully, if, if, if someone is assigned to communicate to the internal audience, which is in this case, we're talking about the law enforcement audience, ideally, someone is communicating internally at the same time that officers are going to the scene of whatever's occurring. Too often the internal audience gets completely forgotten about. And that's even more important when an officer has been uh, hurt or killed. If there's an officer involved shooting, too often that internal audience gets forgotten about and it's all about the media. It needs to be about the public, the media and social media. And Kristen, to your other question about Yes. My question, right, real quick, right there, because it. yes, because people are going yeah. to wonder when you talk about social media and you mentioned X, if I'm, you know, a police chief or, you know, someone who's running the social media in my organization, where do I need to be? Should I be on Facebook? Should I be on Instagram? Should I be on TikTok? Should I be on Twitter? Do we pick one? Do we have to post to all of them? You know, where, where, what's no, the answer here? It's a lot. It's a lot. Every jurisdiction is different. Every, every state, every city, municipality, they, their 
audience consumes social media differently. And in some markets, you know, I was in the DC market for 30 years. Um, and when X came on, Twitter came on in 09 or whatever, um, that very quickly to me stood out as an excellent tool when I was in the newsroom. I can communicate with viewers off hours. I can show them what I'm learning as I'm reporting before I'm on the air. Then when I went to the PD, that was my go-to. That was my immediate crisis communications tool. X has become a bit of a hellscape. Uh, it is not my favorite platform, but I haven't seen a better platform to communicate in real time during a crisis than that one. You can use Facebook. It's more cumbersome. You have to do things to outmaneuver the algorithm and you have to be very clear that this is the newest update or else someone else is getting a dated post. And that's why X works best for a crisis. I, I don't love it. I was hoping that threads would become the new Twitter. It's not, or at least it's not yet. So I encourage agencies to use that platform because at a minimum, journalists will go there first. And when you're dealing with a full-blown crisis, as Kansas City just did, that tool allows them to push out their news. The media is going to pick it up, amplify the police department's messaging. And when people are trapped or locked down, they're scrolling their feed, searching for news. And if they scroll their feed and they don't hear from the involved law enforcement agency, that's a misstep on the agency's part. And I get it that there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country and resources are tight. But if you know today in blue skies times that we don't have enough people, we don't have the man or woman power to, to handle social media, identify someone today who can. If you've got a rock star person in the Department of Health where you are, can they be your backup if a crisis comes and you turn over your social media to that person working with someone from the agency, here, you can push this out. This is safe to or, share. Or train a team. We have a team of folks that are trained and given the authority across the organization, kind of in this cascading environment, 24-7 environment. So that seems like that would be super robust as well. It's working well. Or outsource it. This, this is one of the things that my firm does, I'm sure other firms do, where we handle social media for law enforcement agencies for whatever reason. They could be a decent sized agency. They don't have the right personnel in place right now. So the other piece that Kristen talked to you about was that, I think she called it that big event. What was like that, that big thing, that watershed moment? I mean, you spoke about 9-11 inspiring you. Uh, really driving you to a more meaningful kind of path. And that's compelling. Um, in the in the job, I think she asked you that. And then I want to hear, what would you say to your younger self now? So okay. you've got two, two big launches right. there to chew on and fill this bunny. On the, on the highlights, which were actually lowlights for what occurred, there are two. There are two. One was while I was at the Prince George's County Police Department, March 13th, 2016, we had an active shooter at our police headquarters that led to the friendly fire death of an undercover narcotics officer, one of our own. And that was about five years into my tenure there. And my, 
my biggest takeaway from that lesson was for the five years leading up to that day, that was national news in no time flat. We were accustomed to using social media and traditional media and internal communications on a, on a regular basis. This was not new when that terrible crisis hit. We'd been doing this all along so that even though it was horrible and there's that fog of war and you don't believe the text when you see it that comes in from your deputy chief of patrol, you just have muscle memory and everything happens as it should from a communications perspective. The other highlight of my career that again stemmed from a low light was about 30 days after January 6th, we got the call to help the United States Capitol Police through the crisis of January 6th. And I was um, just in awe of what that department and responding agencies experienced. And what was noteworthy was that department was not accustomed to communicating with the media frequently, to using social media. It was not wired that way. And there are a variety of reasons that that occurred. Watch them today. Look at how the United States Capitol Police communicates differently today. The image was transformed. People didn't necessarily understand what those officers did prior to January 6th. A lot of people understand what goes into that job now. And what had to be done was their story had to be told. And I will never forget being a brand new consultant on that job and, and telling leadership it's really important that we have our officers explain what they lived that day. And I talked to a sergeant. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. He talked to me on the phone for two hours, a stranger, and cried yeah. about what he had, and I'll, I get choked up to this day. That is critically important that the public hears that. They're not robots. They didn't orchestrate this. It wasn't just any other day. It wasn't a tour. And so if you don't communicate that, then wrong, false lies are allowed to fester. You have to talk. And so I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the wonderful men and women I met at that department. And it's a, it's a lesson in crisis communications. You have got to speak as quickly as possible to counteract the disinformation that exists in the world that we're in today. In Julie, every environment. Wow, Julie. Thank you for, thank you for lending your talent, your skill, your ability to our profession because you're making us better. And especially by drawing out, you know, the truth and inspiring people to shine the light in those dark places. And, you know, and you know, when we learn each other's stories, you know, it becomes more humanized and that's exactly what our profession needs. And thank you so much for, for contributing to it. It has been an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. it. You guys are awesome. Yeah, Julie, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we are we are a better profession and society is is better because you are aiding us in telling our story and telling the truth. And so we'll hear uh maybe in a future episode, at Julie Parker version two, we'll hear about what you tell your younger self. We know you have a hard stop because I, I think your your briefing 
what Interpol or you know, <laughs> no. uh, talking about NASA. <laughs> I'm not. I think Kristen said, you know, you're you're teaching. You know, the journalist of the, Lester Holt apparently is coming to you. No, uh, no, okay. no, no, no. I have a call with the state agency. <laughs> okay, no, not quite that dramatic. It it was a treat. So Kristen's going to take us home. Thanks for filling our bunnies, Julie Park. You gave us a lot Thank to you. consider and a lot to take action on. Yes, you you are the best, Julie Parker. And you can find Julie and her team at Julie Parker Communications. Reach out to them uh, for all your comms needs. Uh, Today, thank you so much, Bunnies, for showing up. Uh, Big thanks to Ted Madden, who produces this podcast, although I'm in charge today and drunk on power. Uh, And the song you are about to hear was written (laughs) and performed exclusively for our podcast by my handsome and talented son, Jake Zeman, and his friends, Fabian and Zoe. If you like our podcast, please punch that subscribe button. We're not violent people, uh, neither are you, but we want you to punch it. Punch it right now. Like it, review it, tell everyone you know about it. Follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, or X, whatever you call it. Uh, If you don't like the podcast, just move along. There's nothing more to see here. Bunnies, thank you for showing up. Keep filling your own bunnies with substance and continue to add substance to others. Bye, everybody. What do you find? Are you content to fall behind when you lose your way and you've lost your why? Have courage and get ready to fight the hollow buddy. When the way ahead is covered in smoke and you're tired and scared and you're losing hope, you'll open your heart and your eyes and see a challenge and a question. Why not me? To fight the hollow buddy And we all feel hollow sometimes But the monsters are only in your mind It's a tough pill to swallow But if you're brave and kind You'll be Do you